John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. The next day, again, John, that is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Or where are you abiding? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. It was late. Um, about a month ago, I had the joy of going to Anonymous Theater in Portland. You guys know about this? Anonymous Theater? It, apparently, it's, yeah, it's, it's all the rage. I'd never heard of it until I heard of it. And it, they, they hold it annually. It's just a one-night show that happens at Portland Center Stage. And it just so happened that one of my, like literally one of my favorite actors on the planet had a part in anonymous theater. And the way it works, and trust me, I'm going to tie this in in a second. The way it works is um, all of the actors who've been cast in this play, it was a musical, The Pirates of Penzance in this case, no one knows who their fellow actors are. They just all, so they've all rehearsed separately, and apparently each actor gets one session with the director, so the director knows who everyone is, but no one knows who their fellow actors and actresses are. There's a lot of choreography that goes into this. Everyone memorizes their lines and their choreography and all the things, and they show up night of, all of the actors are sitting in the audience, dressed up. Of course, the audience members are also dressed up. I went as a pirate. Um, everyone looked like a pirate. And the play begins. And you don't know who's actually in the play until they stand up and belt out their first line. And then make their way to the stage, and that's how it starts. Isn't that wild? And you can feel the energy in the room. When you get there, you're just kind of looking around. And I was with Shirley, and she's like, oh, I, bet, I bet that person's in. I'm like, ah, no, it's too obvious, too obvious. And you're kind of looking around. Of course, we saw our friend who was in the, in the, the production. We're like, oh, yeah, we, we know that one. We know that one. This is John's. The very first words out of the mouth of Jesus, according to the gospel of John. What are you seeking? What do you desire? Or what are you looking for? This is uh, significant. This is where of all of the places the gospel writer could begin, this is it. These are the very first words to come out of the mouth of Jesus according to the story as John remembers it. And writes it down. Uh, the gospel according to Luke actually has a very similar starting point. What are the very first words of Jesus recorded in the gospel according to Luke? Well, it's actually young boy Jesus. He's gone missing and his parents have to go find him because he was left behind at the festival. 
When they finally locate him, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth are, why were you looking for me? What are we looking for this morning? Presumably, if you go to church on a Sunday morning, you might be looking for something to do with Jesus. Or not. I don't know. I don't know where you're coming from. But it would be a safe assumption. A good assumption. What are you seeking? They tell him, and then Jesus replies by commanding them, Come and see. You want to know where I'm abiding? Come. Which I love. Jesus doesn't just give them uh, like a, a, a theological breakdown of like where he's quote unquote abiding. He says, oh, you want to know? Then come. Come and see. Taste and see as it were. Come and experience truth and grace for yourself in a very personal fashion. And so he invites them not just to understand something about who he is or what they think they're looking for, but he invites them to to walk with him. They end up spending the night with Jesus. And if that's not an exciting invitation, I don't know what is. At the beginning of the Christian journey, a question and a command. What are you looking for? Come. And see. Come and see. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. Come and receive from Jesus what your inner being most truly desires. This morning we're going to talk about um, receiving from Jesus. What are you looking for? Come and receive. This is part four of the uh, teaching series we've been in for the last month or so. We call it Back to the Basics. You know, there's virtually nothing, very little, if anything, more basic than learning to receive from Jesus. And this is a bit of an abstract one. So far in the series, um, I'll just catch you up if you're jumping in for the first time. Um, we've been talking about what are the basics that we, we do and perhaps even take for granted as a church. You know, we have this like weekly rhythm. Casey, you talked about our rhythms. We have weekly, monthly, annual rhythms. And some of them, some of our rhythms are so basic. I think a lot of us, particularly if you've been like doing church for a minute, we start to just take for granted these things that we do. and We, we sort of forget, like, why are these things important? We gather. That was week one. Like, we literally just prioritize our gathering. For us, for many, that just so happens to be at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Standard Jesus time, right? Does Jesus come to church at any other time other than 10 a.m.? Thank you for laughing, Jared. Everyone else is like, what are you talking about? can always count on Jared. We gather. What a simple thing. Is it biblical? Is there a purpose? Absolutely. We worship. So these songs that we sing together, why do we do that again? It's so basic. We do it every week. Why is it so important? And then last week, if you were here, um, 
We did, we submit, we gather, we worship, we submit. That's a different one. Probably unexpected, if I had to guess. Like if you were wondering, like, what are, what are the basics we're going to cover? I bet you you didn't guess we submit. But it's super basic. Core, even, to just a life of following Jesus. I might say more about that later. But this morning, we receive is the basic that we're going to consider. Back to the basics, part four, we receive. Let me pray. Lord, would you help us this morning to receive from you? Ultimately, we are here not to hear um, song song or preach or preach. Lord, we're here to meet with you, and I pray that through Uh, My message, the words that I prepared, your voice would resound. Holy Spirit, would you be the true teacher this morning? And would you cause our hearts and our minds to be open in a way that we would receive from you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2 is our anchor verse. It says, the disciples, day by day, were together attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So this is just another element of that sort of example of the first century church. There was a few things that they did. They kind of presented us with a pattern, if you will. What are the things that the early church sort of did? And one of those things was simply they received together, specifically food, but I would argue that it was, there was a broader kind of receiving happening in the church. So let's talk about receiving. Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. The prayer begins by honoring God for who he is. God, you are holy. As we come into your presence, let us acknowledge that you are God. You are a creator, you are our sustainer, you are a redeemer, you are holy, unlike the creature. And Father, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. We're not here to manipulate you or to simply um, get you to do our will, but we want to come into your presence and ask that your will would be done because your will is good. In fact, your vision is the best vision for our lives, so we're asking that your will would be done and then, and then, God, would you give us, would you give us today our daily bread? It's the first thing I want to emphasize about the basic of receiving is that this is um, a daily phenomenon. Give us today our daily bread. Lord, help us to receive from you. It's as basic as as that. It's not just something we do one time. It's the daily posture of the follower of Jesus. We begin, Lord, give us what we need today. Help us to receive every day, every week, every time we gather, we come to Jesus and receive from him through human agency the food and drink our soul and our bodies most desperately desires. Every day, 
every week, every time we gather, we come to Jesus and receive through him or from him through human agency the food and drink that our soul most desperately desires. This is the beginning, middle, and end of the Christian journey of life in the spirit of being a part of God's family. It's as basic as putting your pants on before you leave the house in the morning. It's as basic as putting your underwear on when you get up and as difficult as learning how to walk for the first time. You guys remember how difficult it was learning how to walk? I mean, was that not awkward or? No one, no one remembers that. Don't you just love watching a little one learn how to walk? It's so sweet and hilarious. They're all wobbly and, and then they, you know, they'll take a couple steps and they just kind of plop down on their plump little tushy. And eventually you learn how to walk and you don't ever think twice about it unless something happens. Perhaps you have a stroke or, or you have to be rehabilitated in some way and then you're learning to walk all over again. That does happen. And I hear it's a nightmare. But learning to receive daily from God it's as, as second nature as just breathing and as difficult as like learning how to walk for the first time. It's paradoxical. Um, I want to go right into why this idea of coming together ready to receive from Jesus through human agency is so difficult. And I want to suggest up front that some of you might be thinking like, ah, this, is, this is weird. I don't, I'm not really sure where you're going with this. I'm listening, but honestly, like, what, why is receiving so hard? And perhaps you don't think it's as hard as it actually is, but I'm, I'm convinced, and I'll just tell you my opinion from like this perspective, from a pastor's perspective for whatever it's worth, I would argue that receiving is possibly the hardest thing you'll ever have to learn how to do as a child of God. Particularly as you grow up. Kids, ah, they, we can learn a lot from the little ones. Unless we learn how to receive the kingdom of God like a little one, we'll never enter the kingdom of God. We have a lot to learn from kids. Kids don't struggle to receive, like really, at all. They're super good at it. As we grow up, things change. It's like we learn how, we forget how to actually walk. We forget how to actually see. We forget how to actually love. Things get complicated. So again, I'm, I'm going to argue right up front that receiving, learning to receive, as if we needed God to teach us to walk is one of the hardest things you'll ever do as a follower of Christ. So let's talk about the obstacles to receiving. I just referenced this out of Mark chapter 10. Jesus said, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Kids don't have a problem receiving gifts. 
because kids, they're relatively unaware of the power dynamics around them. For them, it's just, it's just it's life, it's breathing air. Everyone's big and they're little. Everyone's strong and they're weak. Everyone's smart and they don't know anything yet. Eventually, they, they learn a few things. But kids are relatively just unaware that there is even such a thing as power dynamics. But as we grow up, we eventually figure it out. Receiving, receiving is vulnerable. It requires that we submit to the good will of another. It requires that we submit to the, hopefully, good will of another, which makes receiving um, very vulnerable. It takes courage to receive. And so fear is the great obstacle of receiving as a child of God. It's just scary. And I don't know if there's really anything more that needs to be said about it. Receiving is vulnerable. That's obstacle number one. Obstacle number two. Um, It's actually the flip side of fear. It's what I call fear in a tux. We call it pride. It's just fear dressed up. It's fear presenting in a way that usually um, sounds a bit prideful or arrogant, but it's just fear. It's the flip side. Pride. I'd rather be the giver. It's a better look. It feels stronger. Or, I used to be on the receiving end, but I have matured beyond neediness. Is that is that legit? I've matured beyond neediness. I'd like to think it's true. It says in Galatians chapter 3. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The flesh not referring to our physical bodies, which are gifts from God, um, but that part of our being that opposes the Spirit, that opposes trusting God, putting our faith in Jesus. Did you begin by receiving the gift of the Spirit only then to finish or be perfected? Through like, okay, I got this now. I'm strong now. I'm mature now. I'm knowledgeable now. I've graduated now, so I don't need to continue being on the receiving end. I've received, thank you, and now I'm in the position to be the, uh, the giver, the primary giver. And Paul's argument, there's obviously quite a bit of context here, but for the sake of this topic, Paul's argument is you don't ever graduate from the position of receiver. You begin, it's the beginning, middle, and end of the Christian journey. In fact, true Christian maturity isn't that I've now somehow um, excelled beyond my need for God's strength, for God's grace. The truly mature Christian is only becoming increasingly aware of his or her need for it. 
Um, and some, some of, so Paul, the Apostle Paul was the one that wrote this letter to the Galatians that I've just read out of. And he writes a few other letters in the New Testament. And a couple of those letters, he has these like, uh, um, quote unquote, sayings. He says, here's a trustworthy saying. And when he's saying this, most of these letters where he says that, like these are the big, like, like I'm, I'm, I'm on my way out. This is old man Paul sitting in some Roman dungeon someplace, reflecting on everything, wanting to impart like the, the best of what, he, what he's received to people like Timothy or some of the early churches. And, so, and he writes this. He says, here's a true and tr- trustworthy saying. God came to save sinners among whom I am the chief, the foremost. So this is the great spiritual, mature, leader, apostle, Paul. Writing now in the last days of his life. Here's a true and trustworthy saying. Here's something to hold on to and never let go of. God came to save sinners. And I'm the chief. I need God's grace today more than I've ever needed it my entire life. I am a needy man. It's not super sexy. I'd rather be the giver. It's a better look. It feels more in control. It feels stronger. I used to be on the receiving end, but I've matured beyond neediness. We don't ever graduate from needing to receive from Jesus. Here's a true and trustworthy saying. Here's something uh, to write down. Seriously, you can write this down. Abba must never become Fred. Here's what I mean by that. (laughs) Abba is the sort of... um, It's the term that Jesus used to refer to his father, God, Abba. It's an Aramaic word that apparently translates to like daddy. This is very sort of intimate term of, of affection. Daddy. Not sir, but daddy. My dad's name is Fred. No matter how big I get, Papa never becomes Fred. Papa is and must always remain Papa, he's my daddy. No matter how big we get, we must never begin to think of God as like um, anything other than our daddy. The one to whom we go when we need strength, wisdom, Abba. Abba must never become Fred. What's your dad's name? You can write down your dad's name rather than Fred. Fear, pride, one more. And this one, this one's a bit more lengthy. Um, I would say one of the great obstacles of, of learning the lifestyle of receiving from God, particularly as we, we gather. Again, let me just bring it back to that because we're talking about like the things, the basics we do as a church family. We gather, we worship, we submit to one another. 
and we receive. One of the greatest obstacles to coming into a place like this with a heart of a receiver, like being okay with being needy, it's bad theology. It's actually just bad theology. You, sorry, I don't mean that. You, you misunderstand the heart of God. And it makes it very hard for you to receive like a child through human agency, I would add. You must understand who our Father is. Somehow, along the way, you've picked up some really bad theology. We all have, let's face it. There's just too much of it out there. What, is, what am I talking about? Three, three kinds. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, what kind of gift giver is God? So when we talk about God being the gift giver, and if for me, I don't ever graduate from being on the receiving end, like a child, um, what kind of gift giver is Abba? What are, we, what are we talking about? Let's break that down. What kind of gift giver is God? And thus, what kind of receiver does that make you? Three kinds of givers. I want to talk about the wealthy business partner, the brutal tyrant, and the generous father. Which one do you think God's the most like? Hang in there. I'm going to, I'm going to explain it to you. The wealthy business partner, the brutal tyrant, and the generous father. The wealthy business partner. Give some, expect some. You guys have heard of John 3.16? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whosoever invests in the kingdom of God will get something in return. You guys know that one? totally not it, right? God so loved the world that he gave a gift to the world, the greatest gift of ever, of, of all. And whosoever believes in Jesus, trusts him. What, what is that? Believes in Jesus, trusts Jesus, receives the gifts, receives the gift, choosing to believe that the gift giver is good it's not a trick it's not a snake it's not manipulation it's a good gift when we begin to view God or we forget that God's that kind of gift giver we begin to imagine God's more like a wealthy business partner um, we begin to sort of approach God and receive from our father as if like okay he's going to give us something and we'll receive that, but then there's this, um, this, you know, there's an expectation that like that somehow this is a business transaction, and if I'm going to receive something from him, then then there's an expectation that you know he expects to get a return on his investment, and so that and that's kind of the world we live in. That's that's how it works. That's a consumer sort of market. You give something and you get something out. I'm currently. Uh, doing some work on my finances and thinking about my future and it's really scary and it's like grown-up stuff and, I'm, and I, I just bought life insurance again for the second time in my life um, because the first time I was like in my 20s and who thinks about life insurance when they're in their 20s? But now I'm almost 50 and so I'm buying life insurance and I'm like rethinking like my retirement and it's really scary 
And the idea is that you, you invest hoping that you'll get something back. And that's, that's how our world works for the most part. But is God a wealthy business partner? When I receive from God, is it transactional? Is there an expectation that now that I've received something, I'm, I'm going to have to give something back? And, and hopefully, hopefully, whatever I invest will be worth the sacrifice. Is God a wealthy business partner? Does God expect a return on his quote-unquote investment? Now, that's a tricky question. Does God expect something from me? Yes. 100%. Does God expect me to obey him? Mm-hmm. Of course. If I have received the love of Jesus, then the expectation is I will obey him. And Jesus said it explicitly. If, if I truly love him, then I will obey him. And presumably if I love him, it's because I've first been loved. So yes, God expects me to do something with the love that he's given me. Mm-hmm. Um, I would go even further and say just by like definition, love is inherently reciprocal. If you receive a good gift from someone, it would compel you to do something good with it. And if your heart has truly been filled with the love of God, then you will arguably, to varying degrees, find yourself being compelled by that love to share his goodness with others. At least that's the idea, theologically. God's love compels us to obey, and there's a world of difference between that sort of quote-unquote expectation and that of um, a God who gives a gift in a manipulative fashion. Using that gift then to uh, coerce me in to getting his will done. That's a different kind of expectation. God's not a wealthy business partner. Um, the wealthy business partner, God, will end up making you into an entitled consumer. Like God, you will also give a little and will always expect something in return. That creates a trade economy. Um, and you might be wondering, like, do I do that? Is that how? Most of us, I don't think, do that consciously. We don't really think of God as like this business partner where he invites us to invest in his like pyramid scheme and, and promises us where it's really going to pay off. You just got to recruit a few people, you know. Like, is, no, no one really thinks of God like that, hopefully. But do we act like that? How many of us can catch ourselves like beginning to think or, or maybe even give to others as sort of an entitled consumer? I give a little to the church. Because I've received a little. I almost feel obligated. Like I come here and Simon preaches and, you know, it's kind of warm in here. And so someone's like, you know, paying for this. And I feel like I'm getting a little something. So surely I should sort of contribute something. That seems like the right thing. And, and we tend to think in those transactional terms. Right? And then eventually you might catch yourself. You might catch yourself even sort of weighing up. Like, well, 
you know, they're, they're talking about giving every week, and I don't know if I really have the extra cash to give to the church. I already give these other things, and, and actually, I give my time, so surely that counts some. And without consciously becoming aware of it, I've caught myself doing this, and I've caught some of you doing this. You begin to sort of like weigh up, like, well, but I already give in this way, so why should I have to give more? And, and we're sort of like, we're, we're adding it up, we're tabulating, like, well, I've received this much, so I'm going to give this much, and that seems fair. Maybe I'll give a little bit more because I want to be generous, and, and, and we think, but I don't need to give that much more. I already served my time, so I don't need to serve my money. I'm covered, right? That's the entitled consumer. And I don't say that to, like, shame anyone, make you feel bad about yourself. Um, I'm saying it because I've been there. Like, oh, I get that. I get that. It's very easy to begin thinking in those transactional terms. But God's not that kind of giver. So let's keep going. How about the brutal tyrant? The brutal tyrant gives nothing and expects everything. Or to nuance it just a little bit, the brutal tyrant um, gave something but then gives nothing and expects everything. It would be like the master who bought the slave. Now I own you, and I owe you nothing, but you owe me everything. And don't expect anything in return, because I, I purchased you. I, I, I bled for you. You're mine, so I, I don't owe you a thing. And thus, you mustn't expect any good gift from your master. Gives nothing and expects everything. What kind of uh, receiver does this produce? I call this the impoverished martyr. So the brutal tyrant gives nothing, expects everything. The impoverished martyr gives everything and expects nothing. It's the the sort of mentality that thinks that like, oh yeah, God doesn't owe me anything. I am indebted to God for everything. And thus it would be right for me to lay down my life with zero expectations of reward. Right? God gave everything for me, so it seems like a virtuous attitude that I would lay down everything for him, expecting zero in way of reward. But God's not a brutal tyrant. The impoverished martyr is the Christian who sees suffering as an inherent virtue. Suffering is good for the sake of suffering. And that's not Christian. That's not biblical. Suffering for the sake of the gospel, suffering in the name of Jesus, suffering in the name of love, That's a Christian virtue. Jesus told us to um, take up our cross. He said, if you lose your life, you'll gain your life. Which means that the call to give up everything comes with the promise of great reward. Jesus doesn't just call us to suffer for suffering's sake as if somehow suffering is like this virtuous thing. 
God didn't save us to watch us suffer that he might be impressed with our um, piousness. He calls us to lose everything that we might gain even more. Um, but you see this you see this show up in the church. Um, Colossians 2.23, again, this is the Apostle Paul writing. He says this, some, they act in a way that has the appearance of wisdom in promoting quote-unquote religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. All the way back in the first century, there were people in the church who had it in their mind that actually what God really wants is me to like, uh, prove my loyalty to him by punishing myself, by denying myself as a way to prove that I am worth God's sacrifice. What do you think about that? The impoverished martyr. And now, I've qualified it with that word impoverished. Because actually, I think martyrs are, I mean, apparently, there's still Christian martyrs um, all over the world today. People, people dying for their faith, like losing their lives, the lives of their loved ones or property because they refuse to deny Jesus. That's incredible. Like, that's, that's really inspiring and kind of scary. It's like, wow, goodness, like, would I have the courage? I, I don't know, I don't know. But I have a lot of um, respect for, for martyrs. But not an impoverished martyr. Not, not the Christian who somehow bought into this idea that like, oh yeah, God, God wants me to just suffer because that's somehow inherently virtuous. Um, forgetting that actually, um, as one theologian put it, God has called us to be uh, Christian hedonists. Ever heard that expression? Christian hedonism? Yeah, I like that. This idea that God longs to reward his children, to give good gifts to his kids. And whatever he calls us to sacrifice, it's not to just make a point. It's that we might have empty hands able to receive like the really good stuff. Whether that's in this life or the life to come, if we give up houses and property, even our life itself, he gives, he gives, he gives. Because he's not a brutal tyrant and he's not a rich business partner. He's our good father. He's a generous father. Um, before I go on to that point, the wealthy business partner produces an entitled consumer, which results in a trade economy, trade economy. The brutal tyrant produces the impoverished martyr, which creates a slave economy. But the generous father gives everything, absorbs our debt, and then keeps giving even more. How wonderful and scandalous is that? He gives everything, even though we're in debt to him, he absorbs our debt and then throws us a party. And he just keeps giving 
and giving, and giving not as a means to manipulate us into doing his will, but just because he loves us. And he's a good father who delights in giving good gifts to his children. This produces the beloved son or daughter. This is why I love Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. The kid who asks his dad for his inheritance early and then leaves and he squanders it. And maybe you've heard the story. He loses everything and then one morning he wakes up and he thinks to himself, what have I done? He comes to his senses and he thinks, I got to go home. Maybe my dad will take me back as one of his servants. And and at least I'll have like a roof over my head and I can like earn my, my keep, maybe even pay off my debt. Maybe. And so he begins to rehearse this like, dad, I'm sorry, what can I do to make it right speech? And he starts the long journey home and then Just as he's coming over the horizon, his dad, who's been like waiting and watching for his son to come home, sees him. He goes running to his son. And before his son can get like one word of his speech out of his mouth, his dad just wraps his arms around him. And he's like, no, 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 none of that talk. Debt absolved. I'm going to absorb your debt for you. Why would you do that, dad? Because my son or my daughter who was once dead, is now alive. (laughs) Because I'm your father. I'm your father. Why do I love you? I don't know. (laughs) You're a pain in the butt. You cost me a lot, a whole lot. And I love you, and I would do it over and over and over and over. That's our good father. That produces beloved sons and daughters. Um, that produces happy treasure hunters. There's another parable that Jesus tells. Um, this is in Matthew 13. Um, it's just a one-verse parable. And he says, The kingdom of God is like um, the man who found a treasure in a field. And because of his joy, he covered up the treasure, sold everything that he had to buy the field that he might obtain the treasure. Is that transactional? No. That's a happy treasure hunter for his joy. He said, you know what? I'm going to give up everything that I might gain something even more. That's not a transaction. That's not a sacrifice. That's a revelation that God is offering me what I'm truly looking for. The deepest desire of my soul is what God wants to give me. Only before I can receive it, I've got to empty my hands. And in retrospect, the sacrifice that I thought I was making really pales in comparison to the gift God is offering me. It's not a transaction. It's just simply like, okay, man, I've got, God wants to give me this gift, but I have a rock full of, I have a, I have a pocket full of rocks and dirt, faux diamonds, and he's trying to give me the true treasure. Which, by the way, in that parable, who's the treasure? The gift giver becomes the gift itself. God offers us him. That's what I call a freedom economy. It sets us free. It makes sacrifice um, into acts of love and worship and joy. That's, That's the kind of receiving that God is asking us. Uh to embrace.
So it's not the wealthy business partner. He's not the brutal tyrant. He's the generous father. So there's some good theology for you. Tuck it away. See if you can't um, catch yourself thinking like the entitled consumer. That's, that's really the most common one, I find. Occasionally, you'll meet someone who's convinced that God just loves it when they suffer for suffering's sake. That's a little more rare in our, in our world. It's the entitled consumer. It's the person who, who enters the religious moment thinking like, I'll give a little bit, but then I expect a little bit. Or even in our relationships, it, it crosses over into like virtually every realm of life. I'll give a little bit, but then I expect a little something. And, and it's sort of this dance it's not really a very vulnerable thing. It's a very calculated, controlled thing. And then God says, no, no, no. Let's not do that. I want to relate to you as your good father. But see if you can't catch yourself. I do all the time thinking like that. Um, and then God invites me to repent. So... Invitations for growth. How can we get better at this? When you come into this place, we gather, we worship, we submit to one another, and then we receive. Uh, through human agency, we, we receive from Jesus through one another. How can we get better at this? So let's say we get our thinking sorted out. We realize, okay, this is who God is. This, this is it. And, and, and I don't ever graduate from like, receiving. I'm always like a child, always coming to Father, to Abba with open hands. Lord, I need you today. I need you to fill me today. I need your joy today. I need, I need you to renew my hope today. Please, God. And so how do we get better at just living or starting the day or coming into this place with that mentality? few practical suggestions, invitations for growth. Number one, come here uh, having determined your need and then tell someone. So Jesus asked the question, what are you looking for? Uh-huh. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? Why are you here? Why are you here? I think most of us, like we might have this the kind of the, the not really giving it much thought, sort of this is just from the hip answer. But what are you really looking for? What are you looking for? What are you hoping to get from Jesus? When you come into this place, can I invite you? Come needy. And if someone happens to ask you, hey, how's it going? Um, I don't know if anyone would actually say this. Um, Maybe we would. How can I serve you today, brother? Sister? What can I do for you? How can I bless you? Please don't say, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm just here to serve. Yeah. Can you, can you stop doing that, please? Oh, by all means, please serve. Like you, you might today, it might be your opportunity to be like a conduit of God's healing, God's blessing, God's provision in someone else's life. Next week, we're going to talk about giving. So first we talk about receiving, then we talk about giving. Ben's going to preach next week. I'm going to be in South Africa. What is your need? Be prepared to tell someone. I encourage you to be a needy person and share those needs with others. Think about it. 
Number two, there's three of them. Number two, see your need as an opportunity for another to fulfill their need to give love. That is good. Thank you. See your need as an opportunity for another to fulfill their need to give love. Because how many of you in here, you're like, dude, I want, I've got so much to offer. Like, I want so badly to just, like, give my affection to another human being. Like, that is my deepest longing. My heartfelt desire is to actually share some of this, like, love. I got all bottled up. And I would just be such a great spouse to someone. I would just, I, I could be a good friend if someone would give me a chance. I would love to be a parent. I just want to give love. That's a, that's a God attribute. You could be someone's opportunity to give love and meet their need to do so. And then thirdly, be prepared to receive the imperfect offering. Because here's the deal about receiving from God through human agency. God likes to put his power in... Um, what the Bible describes as clay jars, earthen vessels, crackpots. That's us. Look around. Look around. That same person that you said, you look good, look him in the eye and say, man, you are a wreck. You got a lot of work to do. That's us. That's us. Learn to cherish the imperfect gift. There's very few things more heartbreaking in a church family when I see this. I'm sure we all see it. I see it as a pastor. Someone who says, um, like for example, someone will come into this space and their real need is, is to be seen. They're looking for um, intimacy. Could be romantic intimacy. It could just be like friendship. Just Friendship. And they, they're hoping that maybe it'll happen here. And they come in, they sit down, maybe they have a couple interactions, they drink their coffee, and there's a bit of chit-chat. And it's all relatively superficial because, I mean, what can you expect? It's like it's an hour on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. It's not going to get too deep. It could. It could. But usually that happens at Ecclesia during the week. Um, but you come in this place, and like the need's there. I'm looking for friendship. And then along comes, who can I pick on? Along comes Simon, Dr. Simon Bardoni. And I recognize your need. And I'm like, I'll be your friend. And I'll, I'll try so hard. I'll give you everything that I've got. I'll give you my time. I'll give you my affection. I'll, whatever. I'll listen to you. And I'll try so hard to be your friend. And you know how many times I've been told in so many words, you're a crap friend. I'm, I'm going to go look elsewhere. And we do that to each other. Cherish the imperfect gift. Understand that God pours his love out through earthen vessels. And what you're hoping for in friendship may come through someone or some means that looks nothing like your ideal version. But God is so good. Forget your ideal version. Forget my ideal version. What is that anyway? What is that? You don't want to be my friend. 
I could point to 12 other people in this room. You wouldn't think it, but they would be way better friends than me. Their breath smells, they look a bit awkward, they're not nearly as handsome, but my goodness. No, I know I'm not handsome. Cherish the imperfect gift. Receive the offering of another. Give them a chance. Let them be imperfect. Experience God's strength perfected in weakness. Can I invite the worship team to join me up front, please? As always, we're going to have um, a time where we sing songs of worship. As we do that, we're going to receive communion. This is part of our, our rhythm. But we're going to do something a little different this morning. Because I was thinking about this and I thought, oh, we're going to receive the elements. Here's a little opportunity. Let's, um, let's maximize the moment. Um, you may have noticed that every week when we receive communion, someone's holding the plate and the cup. And I don't know if you've ever wondered to yourself, like, why do they do that? It seems like such a silly thing. Like, there's tables right there. Um, and every church does it different, so this is not a critique against anyone. But we have people hold the elements for a very deliberate reason. We always have. Because the body of Christ, the bread and the juice, is to be served not taken. It's to be received. It's, it's like the other sacrament, baptism. You don't baptize yourself. You submit to another. And you get into this very vulnerable position where you're like, man, don't hold me under too long. And through human agency, you receive the grace of God. And that's why we hold the elements. This morning, I want to kind of like um, just accent, put an accent on that, that symbol this morning. If we can go to the next slide. Um, if you're serving communion this morning, and we, gotta, we need to like figure that out like right now, like, yep, yep, normally we're more organized than this, I promise. Go ahead, yeah. Um, we're gonna form lines in a minute, and you're gonna receive the bread, and you're gonna dip it in the juice. And that's a Christian's way of saying, I receive God's sacrifice for me. God gave the life of his son as a sacrifice for me that I might be forgiven. He, he absorbed my debt through his death. That's what we're doing. That's what we're remembering. And it's for Christians. As you receive, I want the server to say, so if you're serving communion, you're going to be standing there and if someone walks up to you as they reach to take the bread, I want you to say to them, receive this gift today, the body and blood of Jesus given for you. And then if you're the receiver, if you're taking the bread and you're dipping it in the juice, before you put it in your mouth, I want you to say back to them, I received the gift. Thank you. So it's just going to slow the whole process down a little bit and just help us to be like very intentional. I'm, I'm receiving a gift today. Someone is giving, I'm receiving God's grace through human agency right now, and I'm, I'm receiving it. I'm intentionally receiving the gift 
and saying thank you. Very simple. But those are the words. That's the liturgy that we're going to use today. Receive this gift today, the body and blood of Jesus given for you. I receive the gift. Thank you. Can we stand together, please? Good Father, thank you for just how good you are. You don't invite us into um, a business partnership. You don't manipulate us or coerce us into submission. But you come to us inviting us to receive your love and to even partner with you in labor as beloved sons and daughters. I pray that this morning you would help us to receive from you afresh. You know our needs. You know our pain. You know our fear. You know our hopes. Would you help us to trust you again this morning, Jesus? Would you help us to receive from you our daily bread? Rest for our souls. Amen. Whenever you're ready.